Good morning, everyone. Hello, my name is Nicole, and in a moment we'll be reading God's Word together. As you can see, today's passage comes from 1 Corinthians, but not the chapter you might have been thinking of. Um, It's about six chapters earlier, a little bit tougher, and probably wouldn't get picked to be used in the marriage ceremony. Um, So we're going to have a look at that together, and as we bring our minds and our hearts towards our great God, let's speak to him first in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the relationship that we have with you, our great God and Creator, the one who cares for us and loves us without measure. We thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus, and we thank you that we can be united as your family. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come before your word and as James helps to unpack it for us, that we would be reminded of the relationships we have with each other but most of all, the relationship we have with you. And we pray that you would help us see everything in your perspective and always with thanks to you, whose mercies and love are without end. We thank you, our great God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 35. Now about virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. All right. Well... As we mentioned before, this is the start of a series that we've been planning for some time, way back in Term 2. We asked you guys to nominate topics that you would like for us to preach on in Term 4. We then had the congregation vote on all those different topics, and these are the nine that we have selected that are going to be going forth over this next term or so. And we're starting off with a banger, what does Christian dating look like? If you're visiting here with us, I'm so sorry. Um... (laughs) What a, what a great Sunday to come along for the first time and visit with us. But then again, if we do this well, you could probably trust us with most things, right? Uh, so here we go. I'm just going to lean straight into the cringe 
to start with by giving you some of the best Christian pickup lines that I found. Uh, I'm not suggesting this is what you should do, but hey, let's just, let's, you know, it'll be easier for all of us if we, if we start with a little laugh here, okay? Now, I've been working on my delivery, practicing with my wife. Uh, no, not really. All right. If I tried this on, on her, this would, this would not have gone well. Do you think stealing is a sin? Because you just stole my heart. Yeah. Just for the record, these really are the best ones. The number of creepy ones out there is disturbing. Um, all right. Girl... You're like Joshua Jericho. I'd totally let down my walls for you. <laughs> if, you're not a, if, you, if you don't know your Bible at all and that one just went straight over your head, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, you really are a fisher of men because you reeled me in. <laughs> and this is my absolute favorite. I love this one so much. Do you know why Solomon had 700 wives? Because he never met you. Oh! <laughs> it's so... I love it. It's so good. No, we, we, I want to have some fun with this today. Honestly, guys, when this one came up as one of the topics, I mean, this was the one I zeroed in on. I've been looking forward to this for months. Now, we are going to take some time today. I should uh, let you know about that. And, I, and I'll tell you why. It's because this is a topic that requires some nuance and some thought and some reflection because so often teaching in this space can come across as legalistic or heavy-handed or vague uh, and unhelpful. And so we really want to try and ground it in some stuff. Uh, so I'm not going to lie, I, I, they, they told me at the, uh, the data desk before that I, I've blown out the previous record for number of slides in a sermon ever. Um, so just let that sit with you for a sec. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm, I'm going to try and keep this as succinct as I can while giving it the treatment that it properly deserves. Now, because we don't come to this topic from a neutral standpoint, even those that have a desire to try and read the Bible well and understand what the scriptures say, we need to recognize that our views of dating and how this sort of stuff works has been dramatically shaped by the culture that we live in. Dating in our contemporary 21st century Western culture looks significantly different to other places in the world. And I was thinking about it, uh, if movies are the place where we go to get the, the happy ending and the first sort of coming together moment, the ongoing picture of what dating looks like has been shaped way more by TV shows than movies. See, because a movie is that moment when, that, when the, the first crush comes together, it's boy meets girl, that's the typical way. But it's in the ongoing drama, the week in, week out stuff of relationships and people getting together and then breaking up and then getting together with somebody else and all this sort of stuff that I think so often shapes the way. And you know, we've got different generations up there, hopefully I managed to find one for all of you. Uh, but this is the thing, is that we need to recognize that our views about this has been shaped by all sorts of different things. And on top of that, we also have our little Christian subculture that could vary from church to church, where we also have all these different thoughts about dating in one way or another. Uh, so my answers to, to these questions are, are here. We'll work through some of them uh, today. Uh, but you can sort of see that all of, all of us are gonna be bringing some different baggage, some different ideas, shaped by both culture at large, but also by the church culture that we grew, grew up in. 
So what we need to do to get some clarity about what we're talking about today uh, is, is start with a definition. Now, I've taken this one, modified it a little bit from a new book that's just came out uh, this year uh, from a guy by the name of Paul Grimman, who's a lecturer down at Moore College. It's called Water for My Camels, uh, which again, if you don't know, have no Bible knowledge, that's, that's just weird, right? Uh, but it's from an Old Testament story uh, and sort of plays on the fact that so often a boy meets girl at a well, which we've talked about previously before. I think it's a great name for a Christian dating app, The Well. Uh, another book that I'd recommend, particularly for our younger guys, actually, um, is A New Freedom by Mike Snowden. Uh, that's a, a good one that's sort of come out that's got a good chapter on thinking about sex and dating in our contemporary space. But this definition has come from Water for My Camels and goes like this. The, a Christian definition of dating is the process of making some kind of commitment to another person so that together you can work out whether marriage to one another is in your future. Now, that, that including marriage as something that's on view in dating is really sort of the key Christian idea. That when we think about a relationship between a man and a woman, there, there is an end that's been given to us in Scripture for what it's meant to look like if you're going to experience the fullness of what that relationship is that so often dating is sort of leaning into in one way or another. So there's two big ideas that are in this. There's some sense of exclusivity. You've, you've made a commitment to one another, right? In different cultures, again, dating can be a much more casual thing, but in our Australian culture, we typically think of dating as being together in some sort of committed sense. But then also intimacy, because as we're trying to figure out, could we be married to one another? We're, we're sharing about ourselves. We're opening up. We're being more vulnerable. We are considering what it looks like to do really, really important things together. And inherent in this definition, like I said, is the idea that Christian dating is meant to work towards marriage. Now, it doesn't mean that if it doesn't get to marriage, it's a fail. The whole point is to figure out, are we meant to, you know, is, is this something that we are actually meant to do together? That's the question. If, it, if the answer is no, that's fine. But the point is, that's the question that you're asking, so to speak. That's the goal, is to figure that out. So, because marriage is a part of dating, because as we do dating well, marriage will be on view, we need to cover some basics about marriage and also about singleness if we're going to do this well. And this is what I mean by taking our time with this. Okay, so we're going to get to dating sort of in the second half, but we need to set up some marriage and singleness basics first. So, first up, marriage. I want to make the theological statement that humans are made for marriage, but not in the way that you think. And so we're going to go to the super romantic book of Revelation. <laughs> so it says at the very end in this picture that God gave to the Apostle John, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The visual picture that we're given of what it looks like for God's people to finally be united with Christ in fullness is that of a husband and a bride. And Revelation leans on this in a couple of different ways. It goes on to say, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. It's a husband and wife coming together to dwell for eternity. A chapter earlier, John had said, Hallelujah for our, sorry, the angels had said, Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
And fine linen here stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So when we talk about people being made for marriage, the ultimate marriage is between Christ and his church. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection has made possible for us. It's why the cross stands at the center of everything, because it's through Jesus' sacrifice for us, through his blood shed, that he's made it possible for us to be reconciled with God, that we can dwell together in union with him, that that longing that we have for relationship, that that longing to be home, that longing to have a place where we belong is ultimately fulfilled in all that Christ has done for us as we're united to the Heavenly Father. And we can see that Paul uses this idea of a marriage to, again, point towards the relationship between Christ and his church. So at the end of Ephesians 5, and he's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife, he quotes from Genesis 2, and he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He, he just goes back and forth between earthly husbands and earthly wives but he keeps on referencing this as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so as we start to talk about the possibility of dating and looking towards marriage, we need to remember that all people, single, married, divorced, widowed, or dating, will have their truest and deepest fulfillment in their marriage to Christ, not in earthly marriage. That's the starting point that we've got to recognize here that we're going to see is that dating, despite not being ultimate, remains a profoundly good thing. But the key thing here is is that it's not ultimate. Marriage is not the ultimate source of happiness. Not marriage in this world, but rather marriage to Christ. That's where peace, comfort, security, acceptance, affirmation, all those good things, first and foremost, we need to understand that comes through our marriage to Christ. Okay? Now, I should also mention that you know, these days, uh, you know, we have a different legal definition of marriage in Australia to what we've previously had, and we want to be respectful for that and those who enter into it under a different sort of idea. But when we talk about biblical marriage, we're talking about the exclusive, voluntary, sexual and public union of one man and one woman from different families. That different families one doesn't always get thrown in there, but that's important, I think, just to um, you know, keep that there. Uh, if you want to read more deeply on this and some of the, the Christian ideas behind marriage, uh, Christopher Ash uh, has a great big tomb on this book that's uh, worth having a look at. Um, and that's if you really want to go deep dive. He's got a, a slightly easier one as well, but uh, you can Google Christopher Ash and see some thoughts on you know, some reflections that you can wrestle with yourself. So if we're going to say that marriage remains a profound good, what is good about it? As we think about dating and working towards marriage, what are we talking about? Well, we've already covered that it's a symbol of Christ and the church. But it's also a partnership for God's service. It's the place for sexual intimacy and the place for the creation of children. Now, I'm going to talk specifically about the second one, and we'll sort of get to the other points as we go along. But let me tell you what I mean by a partnership for God's service. It says in Genesis 1, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. People were given a mission to fill the earth, to multiply, subdue, to lead over the whole of the earth. In old-fashioned language, have dominion over it. But then we see in Genesis 2 that there was a, a problem. It says that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
But then it also says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, in previous sermons, we've talked about that word helper, that really that means a, you know, a sort of much more of a rescuer partner than it does any sort of diminutive you know, little buddy helper idea or anything like that. The word helper is used to describe God more than anyone else in Scripture. That's a strong word that we're talking about there. But we also need to recognize that when it talks about it's not good for man to be alone, it's not talking about him being alone emotionally. It's not talking about him not having a partner to share just life with in general. The reason that it wasn't good for man to be alone was because he'd been given this mission to multiply and he needed a partner, a rescuing helper, to do that with. And so it says that the Lord God made a, man from the, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Small uh, hobby horse thing for me here right now. So often in Christian marriage books, they call this a love poem or a romance poem or something like that. I don't know about you, but there's nothing romantic about that one. He sees the girl and he's like, she is made of the same things I am made of. I will name her from the fact that she was made out of me. I don't know about you ladies, but if I got that in a a Hallmark card, I don't know how excited I'd be romantically. It's a statement of who she is and what she has been created for, which is to be a partner to him so that they can fulfill the mission God has given to them. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It's in this union between the two of them that sexual union takes place so that they can fulfill that that mission that's been given to them. But this is the thing. It's less about procreation just on its own and more about they are to work together to fulfill the mission that God has given to them. Now, that can really challenge our cultural ideas of what we think about when we think about marriage and that sort of stuff, because it's like, where is the romance? Where is the love? Isn't that meant to be a part of it? To which we'd say, absolutely, love is 100% a part of marriage. Paul, again, makes that really clear. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But what's really interesting is is that this is the same version of love that we see operating in all sorts of different spaces. The expression of it is different. But notice how Jesus talks about love in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love looks like sacrifice. Love looks like denying of oneself in order to care for others. Now, that plays out in a specific way in marriage, where we have the elements of sexual union and procreation and all that sort of stuff. But sacrificial love is something that works across all of our human relationships. It just takes a different form in marriage. And yes, with the gift of sex comes all sorts of ideas that we tie to romance and that sort of stuff. But fundamentally, it's a place of love given sacrificially, It's a symbol of Christ in the church, a partnership for God's service, a place for sexual intimacy, and a place for the creation of children. Now, if you want to learn more about this, we are doing an entire workshop on healthy marriages on October 21st. Do please come along to that. We'd love to have you guys there. But we'll leave those basic principles there for now and think about singleness for a moment. The first thing that we need to say about singleness is that singleness is good, which again, tends to go against our culture, which looks at singleness, particularly for women, I think it's fair to say, as this great sadness or a tragedy 
that if you haven't found a marriage partner, that if you're single, especially by the time you get to a certain age, that this is a, a, a profound place of despair. But what Scripture would say to us is something very different. Because singleness is good whether you are young and single and want to be married, whether you're not planning on marrying, or even if you've been married and are now not, if you're divorced or widowed. And so let's go to the scriptures so that you can see where I'm making this claim from that singleness is good in and of itself. Paul writes from the reading that we heard before, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And then he says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. See, Paul wants to make it really clear that remaining unmarried is a good thing because you have the ability to, without having your interests divided, devote yourself to serving the Lord. And so we can see an interesting parallel here where if we talk about marriage being a partnership for God's service, singleness is good because it allows us to be single-minded in our service to the Lord. And this is really important because, guys, in church circles, too often we've made too much of marriage. It's this you know, little subculture that sort of exists where the, where the perfect Christian life looks like husband, wife, kids, white picket fence with a cross somewhere in there. That, that, that's what Christian blessing looks like. But that's not what Paul's talking about at all here, is it? Both marriage and singleness have their own goods where we can serve the Lord in either of these things, and that's really the, the greatest concern. Marriage is meant to reflect Christ in the church. It's a partnership for service to God. So too, singleness is not a bad thing to be lamented, but rather a season to be embraced where I recognize the good in this that I can serve the Lord wholeheartedly without having my interests divided. And interestingly, in the New Testament, because of what Christ has done, singleness even allows for multiplication. So if in the Old Testament, the picture given to a husband and wife was to, to multiply, to go forth and subdue the earth, what's the big mission that's given to the church, to God's people in the New Testament? Go and make disciples of all nations. The, the proclamation of the gospel is something that you can do whether you're married or single. You can see more and more people come to be a part of God's kingdom whether you're married or you are single. And so what we want to say is that marriage and singleness are both good, both about serving God, and both able to grow God's kingdom even if that looks differently. And that's really, really important because if we start to see singleness just as a precursor to marriage, or if we even see the end of marriage as the end of my time of blessing, then we get ourselves in all sorts of messed up places, both in our heart and in the way that we choose to live. 
Marriages, marriage and singleness are both to be embraced. And this is the other important thing, right? Is that uh, in our marriages, when it's not going good, to also recognize that you know, there are challenges in singleness, there are challenges in marriage, there's, there's going to be challenges in this world either way. And so whichever side of the fence you might be on at any given point in time, you don't want to be looking at the other one and saying, oh, well, that's where I'd be truly happy. Because it's in service to God, it's in a relationship with Him, it's in our marriage to Christ that we need to be content first and foremost. All right, so those are the basics. That's the framework that we need to be thinking about as we then can start to ask this question, what does Christian dating look like? Now, just again, the definition that we're working with here, the process of making some kind of commitment to another person so that together you can work out whether marriage to one another is in your future. And what I want to try and do here is give wisdom for dating in our cultural context, not rules, okay? I I will probably use the language of should and that sort of stuff now, but please don't mishear me in this. These are wisdom principles. Every situation is going to look different. There are some hard lines, I'm not going to lie. There's some stuff in here that I think the Bible is super clear on. But as you weigh this sort of stuff up, this is not going to give you every answer, but rather they're wisdom principles for our current cultural context and what things look like for us in this world that we live in today. So, first question that many people are asking, and again, I just want to say to you that if you are currently married and you're sort of like, "Eh, I don't know if this stuff's really for me, this is part of the problem, guys. We need to have this as a conversation for all of us, as we're going to see. If you're a grandparent, maybe your grandkids are starting to think about this and would love to have a conversation with you about it and think about what this means and learn from the past and, that, and what that looked like then and all that sort of stuff. If you're a parent, okay, and your kids are entering into this stage, this is absolutely the sort of stuff that you want to be thinking well about. So let's get into it together. Now, quick thing, if you have a clarifying question, please feel free to ask. Like, I don't want to be misunderstood. So if you think I've said something really weird, you can shoot your hand up. That's totally fine. We are going to do, after night church tonight, a longer extended Q&A. I expect to be here till about midnight with the young adults. Um, So if you want to come back for that, you're more than welcome to. But if you've got a clarifying question as opposed to taking it further, just let me know. All right. Who to date? This is probably not going to be a surprise. My first piece of wisdom for you, if you are a Christian thinking about Christian dating, is that you should date a Christian. Now, some people will go really hard on this, that it would be a sin to date a non-Christian or to to marry a non-Christian. I'm not sure that we can go that far from Scripture, so I'm not going to unpack all that for time's sake right now. But I think that it is probably foolish to marry somebody who's not a Christian because two of the big four things that marriage is all about is all about the Christian faith being a symbol of Christ and the church, and being in partnership for God's service, it's really hard to do those two things well if one of you is not serving the Lord. And so the reason that we talk about looking to unite ourselves in marriage with another Christian is because it's not possible for us to live out the fullness of what earthly marriage is meant to be if we're not both serving the Lord together. Now, it may not be a sin, I might not be willing to go that far, but man, you're selling marriage short, and you're probably making it about something else if you're willing to enter into it. Now, I want to say that sensibly, because I know that we have people here who are married to non-Christians. Again, I'm not trying to in any way say that, that your marriage is, doesn't count, or that it's less than, but I think that most people from their own experience would know it, it's hard to live this part out 
if you're not actually married to a believer as well. So first one is a Christian. But can I just say that we're not actually looking for just somebody who would be willing to tick the word Christian on a census. Uh, we're looking for a little bit more than, yeah, baby, I'm a Christian. How you doing? It's all right. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah. First Central Baptist West Side from last year. Um, you don't want somebody who is just ticking a box. You want somebody who's actively displaying the fruits of the Spirit. We, we want to see some evidence that this is somebody who is actually following the Lord. Now, again, we're not talking about somebody who's fully mature, okay? Still not sure exactly what Fiona thought about me when she, you know, started, agreed to go out on that first date when I was 21. Um, I'm sure, not sure I would be cool with it today if I was saying, yeah, Lily, check that guy out. Um, but we want some evidence that this person is a genuine believer. So by fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about these things, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, some sense that since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The spirit. There, there is some sense of walking with the Lord and continuing on in Him together. All right, I won't belabor that point too much, uh, but that's the first thing. All right, you should date a Christian who is actively following Jesus. All right, when should you date? All right, again, just wisdom principles here. All right, when you know who you are and what you are about. All right? So when you know who you are and what you are about, if you're still kind of messed up yourself, especially if you're young in the faith and that sort of thing, you're still figuring things out, you're not exactly sure where you land on all sorts of different issues, you're not totally sure what you want out of life and all that sort of thing, oftentimes it's probably going to be wise, and again, it's not a rule, right? It's going to be wise to sort of maybe I've got to figure out myself a little bit because if I'm going to uh, give myself to somebody else, if I'm going to build a life together with somebody else. It'd be a little bit like, you know, building a house without knowing what wood you're using. Like, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it's something sturdy and strong. Maybe it's not there yet. We need to spend a little time growing and developing. So when you know who you are and what you're about, and when you're emotionally and spiritually ready to start to learn to care for someone else day after day. All right? All of us who have grown in relationships know that when we're young, we don't really know what it is to cultivate good, healthy relationships week after week, month after month, year after year. But we need to be in a posture where we're ready to start to learn how to do this well. And just for the record, I think for most of us, it's safe to say that this is not where a 12 or a 13-year-old is at. Again, not a rule. But if we're serious about dating being something that we're trying to figure out, whether we're meant to be getting married in the future, that's probably not a conversation that most young teenagers are going to be equipped for. Maybe late teens, depending on the person, probably more likely into young adulthood and that sort of stuff. Again, not a rule. No, I'm not, not going to start judging and parachuting into youth group and being like, get, get Bible width between you two. All right, just... No, that's not the plan. But in, in having conversations about this, if again, if it's meant to be working towards marriage, what does it look like to do that in early high school? What does it look like to do that in late high school when that becomes a possibility? You can legally marry at 18. It's not like it's out of the question. So these are the sorts of things that we want to be thinking about. Where, where am I in myself? Do I know who I am and what I'm about? And am I actually, do I believe that I'm emotionally and spiritually ready to start loving sacrificially somebody else? day after day, week after week. We're going to come back to how we can get wisdom on that in just a moment, um, but let's leave it there for now. All right, next up. 
had a date, all right? Uh, so you could, on the third date, tell the person that you're dating that God told me that I'm going to marry you, okay? Um, you could do that. Um, it worked for me. But I did discover, upon sharing this revelation from God with my future wife, that two other guys had said that to her previously. So I think the important lesson to talk, take away from this is, I was right, yeah, come on. Uh, I don't recommend that as a strategy, just for record. But let's think about what it might look like to do so uh, with some wisdom here. With a clear goal, we've already covered this, all right? With the definition in mind, we actually know what the relationship is about, what it's working towards, trying to figure out are we meant to be married to one another in, your, in, a, in our future together. Second one, one of the ways that we get wisdom on dating is by doing it in community. Let me talk to you what I mean by this. So we've got a community, and we've got a guy and a girl, and one of them notices the other, and some way, shape, or how a relationship starts. You know, it could happen in a variety of sort of different ways. Uh, but there's a connection that's established. And so often, what you know, pastoral leaders see is that when these two people start to get into each other, they often, uh, oops, they often remove themselves from the view of everybody else. Now, on one level, that's okay, because we've already talked about dating being something that it's exclusive and, and intimate for the purposes of trying to figure out, are we meant to be married together? You do need some privacy, but this is the thing, as, as feelings start to develop and everything, that's all cool and that's good, it can get, if, we're just, if it's just the two of us all the time, it actually starts to get kind of hard to figure out, are all these things actually active in this person's life, or do they just really like me? Are they displaying these things with me right now because we're in this season of infatuation and, and doting on each other and, and it's the honeymoon phase and all that sort of stuff? And the thing is, is that oftentimes when you are in that phase, you don't always see straight, do you? You can be a little bit, you know, just up, head in the clouds, all that sort of stuff. I can still remember the blood rushing to, to my head when I'd get a text from Fee. Like, literally, I think one time, I, 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 like a tear in my eye, and my friend, who we were doing this part-time job together, and he's looking at me like, what is up, man? I'm like, I just got a text from my girl. I didn't even think she was like something special. I think she was just like, hi. Um, there's a lot of feelings that come along with this stuff. And so we want to be able to bring people in because the other thing that goes along with this is if those feelings cease, if things don't work out, you know, some of us might be able to make our way back into community and rebuild some of those relationships that we've put aside and that sort of stuff. But for some, it can just seem like a really long way back into some of those relationships. And rather than coming back in, we sort of just lose them from the space that we're at. I'm sure you've got friends and people that you can think of. And so what we want to do is that we want to be, you know, giving you know, appropriate spaces to develop intimacy and all that sort of stuff in community so that when your head's in the clouds and when you're not sort of seeing straight and all that sort of stuff, there's people around you that can maybe say, hey, no, no, this is, this is good and, and I really like where they're going, but have you thought about the fact that they haven't had a job for 11 months? Like, is that playing into what's happening here? Okay. She's had three car accidents in the last three months. How much do you know about her? Like, what, where, where, what, is there anything else going on in her life that you might be, want to be thinking about? You know, these are the sorts of questions that when we're in community, people can very kindly and gently ask us to help us think a little clearer. And look, if things don't work out, but we're in community together, well, then we're still in community. And while the truth is that it probably looks like this for a little while, 
we're still in a space where we've got relationships and support around us and we can be thinking about this stuff well. So, how to date with a clear goal in mind in community, and this is definitely one for our current age, mindful of technology. This is a fun one, don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but as you trace your way back through the history of human relationships, you go back to when we were a more agriculturally based society and that sort of stuff, if people wanted to you know, express their feelings, they had to write letters in long form and then send them to be delivered, okay? If you wanted to go see them in person, you had to jump on a horse or something like that. This is, this is how Jane Austen made her money, all right? Uh, the, and the thing is, is that when you communicate like this, it naturally adds like a slowness to it because when we went to a more suburban sort of environment and all of a sudden we've got automobiles and all this sort of stuff, you can, you can read about this. So much of the sexual revolution is, is you know, uh, corresponds with the, the prevalence of automobiles and all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, young people have the ability to, to go to find private spaces, to, to get out on their own more and more. They're dating less and less in family and community contexts, more and more in other spaces and that sort of thing. You've got the phone that you can talk to each other for you know, much longer. You don't have to write letters anymore. Technology changes the shape of what relationships look like as does our modern context. So these days, it's certainly not uncommon for people not to be living at home when they're dating and that sort of stuff. We've got phones and devices that have radically changed the shape of how we meet people. All right, I'm not gonna do any big spiels on dating apps. I think that they're like an ethical neutral, like, yeah, you can use them, that's okay. You've gotta be wise about it. No, that's not what this is about right here. But we need to be mindful of recognizing that our ability to project an image, to project a version of ourselves, has gotten much, much more sophisticated. And so finding out the truth about a person is something that we have to think much more deeply about because if we're not actively thinking about it, there's all these things that we can look at and say, oh, but, oh, but this and that and this. And similarly, our technology enables us to be in contact with each other almost constantly. You know, just to, here's a message. You know, just checking in, just wanted to give you a call. What are you doing on social media? I saw that you were liking this post. Why didn't you like my post? You know, all these sorts of questions. And, and, the, and the form of communication, again, has changed. There's images that can be sent, texts, feelings, again, late at night. All of these things, we're not looking to put rules on them, but it'd be foolish not to recognize that the way that we start to build relationship with one another, the way that we develop the intimacy and exclusivity that previously, you know, if you wanted to get an exclusive, mo uh, exclusive moment back in the Victorian era, you know, you had to take a chaperone with you still. Now, if you want an exclusive moment, you can be sitting at the same table secretly sending each other texts, right? But then carry on later into the night and that sort of thing. So we're going to be mindful of technology and how it works and think about that and have that conversation, especially with our younger people. Fleeing from sexual immorality. How to date. Date while fleeing from sexual immorality. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but here's one scripture for us, just so we can see it clearly, again from Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We talked before about how marriage is the place for sexual intimacy. Marriage is more than sex, but it definitely includes sex, but dating does not. Okay, this isn't a wisdom one. This is a pretty clear, this is what Scripture gives to us idea. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we need to understand that there's a general principle. This isn't just for anyone dating. This is for all people. Right? All sexual lust directed to a person outside of marriage is unnatural and sinful. But I need to qualify this for us a little bit because so often lust just sort of becomes this blanket statement that speaks to the feelings that we might have for somebody of the opposite sex. And we need to get a little bit more nuanced than this if this is actually going to be helpful and livable for us. So what is sexual lust? Well, we have to distinguish between lust, uh, attraction or desire, and recognition of beauty. I'm going to work them through in reverse order here. So recognition of beauty, this is the easy one. This is in the Bible again and again and again, the recognition of somebody's beauty. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Even the description of somebody as having a nice shape is not inherently sinful or lustful. Abigail was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was a jerk. Uh, (laughs) He was. The boys get some love. David was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And this, uh, Fiona tells me that she, whenever she reads this verse, she thinks of me. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. He also had like hair that weighed like, you know, kilograms, like hefty, hefty. He's like Fabio or something like that. Um, Fee doesn't actually think that at all. This is just what I tell myself to try and make myself feel better. But key point, recognition of beauty, not a bad thing. Then we've got attraction and desire. All right, this is a desire for someone that doesn't quite get to the same idea of what lust is. So uh, from Corinthians again, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She is free to marry anyone she wishes. Now, the the Greek word that's used there is different from what we'll see in a second, the the word that we usually translate as lust. Now, here it's been translated as wish, but it's a desire. It's a want. I can want to marry someone, and if I understand what marriage is, then I understand that that comes with the total package of what marriage is, including sexual intimacy and all that sort of stuff. So we're not saying that to desire that, to want that, is a bad thing. Okay, but we're going to distinguish between this and lust in a second. Uh, here's a weird one from the Old Testament. Okay, you read the fuller context. It's a weird context. I don't have time to unpack it. I just want you to see the, the distinction here uh, between, again, lust and attraction and this sort of idea. It says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, again, not d- recommended dating advice. Uh, <laughs> if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. There's a distinction between uh, that, that looking, that, uh, you know, it's basically if you notice her, and then that attraction idea is, is something like consider her to be, you know, wifely material is, is kind of the, the, what the, the phrase is getting at there. You know, you may take her as your wife. It's not, it's not lust. It's not that. It's, there's an attachment here. You're drawn to them. All right? It's attached desire, that sort of idea. In fact, you can even have this uh, between people of the, the, the same sex, this idea of, of attraction, of, of being drawn to someone, of taking a great liking to them as it's translated here. It's actually the same word in the Hebrew. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. He had an affection for him. 
It doesn't, it's not inherently sexual. All right? Then we've got lust. So when we think lust, uh, we typically think sex. But biblically, it's more than that. And it's not always bad. Well, let me say this carefully. So we typically think about lust being an intense or illicit uh, sexual desire. But when we look at the, the Greek word, uh, epithumeo there, it's to have a strong desire, and we translate it as lust in certain contexts. But it doesn't always get translated that way. This is one of the tricky things of going from one language to another, right? So, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, where it says, Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task, same word for lust. All right, it's a strong desire, a deep desire. That's kind of the idea that we're working with here, all right? When Jesus said uh, to his apostles reclined at the table, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, it's I have a strong desire with strong desire. That, that, that's the idea that he is getting here. Same word that elsewhere gets translated as lust. So you can have a strong sexual desire slash lust for your spouse. A strong desire is not bad. It's what it's directed at that determines whether this is a good thing or not. So that's, the, that's really the issue that's going on there in Matthew 5 when Jesus says you shall not commit adultery. That's, that's sex outside of marriage. He's not saying that strong desire is bad, but strong desire is bad when it's not directed to the place where it's meant to be directed. So recognition of beauty is good. Attraction or desiring is natural. That's not an inherently bad thing. But strong desire is wrong when it's misplaced, when it's aimed at the wrong thing. And strong desire and lust is only for your spouse. And let me say it again really, really clearly. The person you are dating is not your spouse. And so if you're going to be dating somebody, and if you've got somebody who you care about who is dating somebody, you want them to help, to help them to live in the place of, yes, recognize their beauty, it's okay to be attracted, to be drawn towards them and all that sort of stuff. It's okay to take great delight in them. It's okay to have a great liking. But if it starts to actually move into making them the object of your sexual desire before you've put a ring on it, well, now we've gone too far. Now, I do understand that this is blurry, but we have to make this distinction because the Bible's really clear on this one. So the answer to the classic question you know, what can we do physically and that sort of stuff that everyone, nobody wants to say it out loud, but it's the thing they're all thinking is anything that isn't causing you to lust after one another. Now, it's a high bar, and it's hard, and it's confusing. And so we have to remember at all times that we do this in the context of grace that we've been made right with God because of the sacrifice that he's made for us, that if we mess up in this area, it doesn't mean that we're impure. It doesn't mean that we've lost our righteousness. It doesn't mean that we're no longer right with God. It doesn't mean that we should be excommunicated or, or, or blacked out of the community, anything like that. We need to do two things. We need to recognize the high standard that Jesus calls us to and seek wisdom on how to navigate that, while at the same time recognizing that there is no sin that's greater than God's grace. And we seek to walk that out together. And my bonus tip for any of you who are, might be currently 
dating and thinking about this is recognize the emotional desire behind your physical desire. I have a hunch, well, sorry, I don't have a hunch. I believe this sincerely, theologically. Christians want to obey Jesus. We want to do the right thing. We don't want to have sex before marriage, at least on a deep spiritual level, despite what our flesh might be drawn towards at times, right? But I think that sometimes we've got emotional stuff going on. I just want to know that this person loves me in the way that I love them. I just want acceptance from them. I just want, as I put myself out there and I'm made to feel vulnerable, I want something back from them that makes me also feel safe and secure. And so often our physical intimacy becomes a replacement for trust. That this person does care for me. That the promises that they're making about where this relationship is going is true. And so often, guys can pursue you know, some sense of getting the girl to, to respond to their advances because this confirms for them, she really does like me, I really am special and valuable. And a girl will welcome an advance because, oh man, he must love me if he, if he wants me in this way. That's often the way that it just plays out dynamically. And we have to be wise enough to recognize, okay, why, why do I keep doing these physical things that I don't want to do? It's because there's these emotional drivers that I need to, to deal with and examine and look at and to think that through. And my absolute last point, very, very quickly. Having said all this, date in the freedom of Christ. Dating should not be this thing that we all freak out about and that is super hard and we're legalistic about it and all these rules and all that sort of stuff. It's actually meant to be fun, like on some level, getting to know somebody, imagining what might the future look like. And if we do it well, it's okay if we, we date a few people. Again, we sort of made this idol out of the idea that, that in Christian circles and that sort of stuff, you, you find that, that one person and the first person that you date is the only person that you date, and it's a success if it works towards marriage uh, entirely and all that sort of stuff. If we are dating with marriage in mind, fleeing from sexual morality, doing it in the course of community, successful dating is going to be look like, no, we had a nice time together, but I don't think that's where we're meant to be going. I'm glad I got to know you a little bit more, but I don't think that this is going to work out between us, and we should all celebrate that as a win and give everybody the freedom to do that well and not create a weird culture around it. So, go forth and date, young ones, single ones, widowed ones, divorced ones, but do it for, you know, seeking to serve the Lord and figure out what his will actually is. Now, I know we've covered a lot, all right, you guys have stuck with me, I really, really appreciate that. I still feel like we've only just, you know, built the frame and all that sort of stuff that, you know, trying to figure out the fixtures within the house and all that sort of stuff, that's going to look different for each of us. But as a community, this is a a project that we do together. Creating a space where people can do this well is on all of us. And like I said, if you've got specific questions, we'll have an answer. We'll have the option to ask anonymously after night church tonight. Please come back, um, come along, and we'd love to see you there. But let let me pray for now. We'll go from here. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you for the freedom that he's given to us, freedom to pursue you both in marriage and singleness. Thank you that Jesus was a single man who lived life for the full for you. Thank you that there have been so many couples throughout history that have sought to form a partnership where they they love and serve you well together. We pray, Father, whatever season of life we find ourselves in, whether it's marriage or singleness right now, that we would serve you well. 
And we pray, Father, for all those that are dating or are thinking about dating, that you would give them wisdom in how to do that in a way that honours you, that lays a, a firm foundation for them to build upon, for them to continue to grow in their knowledge and understanding of you, and to figure out whether you are calling them to, to live together and enter into that union of marriage. And we pray, Father, for us as a church community that we would continue to encourage people to do this well, giving you glory and honour in all that we do. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.